last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Welcome to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And with me, Robert Peston. So we've got an action-packed agenda this week. I've just been going through the inflation figures that have been announced. And, you know, there's good news. Inflation has dropped really quite significantly. But we will try and explain why that's happened, whether the Prime Minister is right to take credit for it, and what this all means for living standards, interest rates, and the rest. And after that, what are we doing? We are then going dating because I want to talk about the business of dating apps. There's been a lot in the news about various new appointments in terms of who's running the dating apps because they've got a really tough challenge on their hand at the moment because they've kind of plateaued in terms of the amount of people using these apps. And now they're trying to make more money, you know, per user. So I just want to talk about what's going on there and how AI is probably going to be part of changing our lives for dating and also making these companies more money. And then finally, of course, you know, obviously what I've been absolutely immersed in is this great reshuffle. One aspect of the reshuffle, biggest news in the reshuffle is David Cameron coming back into government. He had a very controversial role with a business that went bust called Greensill. So we will be looking at whether that relationship from which he made a million dollars a year or so, that relationship with Greensill is going to come back to haunt him. Yes. And then we will, of course, answer some of your questions. A reminder, the email is restismoney at gmail.com if you want to send those in. So here's a bizarre thing. The Prime Minister actually had some good news today. <laughs> but, uh, he probably feels he's he's owed some good news given the turmoil and the problems he's been having. Anyway, we had the inflation figures as we've been uh, just mentioning, and they were actually below the target that he set at the beginning of this year. You'll remember he had those five pledges. One of them was to halve inflation in the course of the year, and that meant that inflation would have to be 5.3% or less in the final three months of this year. And we've just had the CPI inflation number for October and it is 4.6%. So comfortably below where he wanted it to be. This begs all sorts of questions. Why has it fallen sharply? It's fallen from 6.7% to 4.6%. And the big driver of that is that energy prices are down. Energy prices are down very significantly compared to this time last year. And I had a quick look at what's been happening to energy prices. And gas prices are 31% below where they were a year ago. And electricity prices or costs are 15.6% below where they were last year. So that's the main driver. That's why inflation is so much lower than it was. But there's quite a lot of other stuff going on as well, isn't there, Steph? 
Yeah, there is. And do you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? This whole rhetoric around him meeting uh, his target, because he certainly, when inflation was over 10%, wasn't saying that the government were part of causing that, were they? You know, it, it's correlation rather than causation here, isn't it? And that's completely right, because apart from anything else, he can't control electricity and gas prices at all. I mean, possibly on the margin, you know, if we were to sort of massively accelerate the building of wind farms, he might in a year or two have an impact on the price mm. of, of electricity. But no, this is a world price. And so he has no control over any of that, as you say. Yeah. So the element of the fall of inflation that is down to energy prices has nothing to do with him. I mean, we should point out, of course, that last year there was a massive subsidy for energy prices. Yeah. And, that, that, and that's not there anymore. No, this was the energy bill support scheme, wasn't it, where every household got 400 quid discount on their energy bills for the winter of 2022 and 2023. It was a £600 in Northern Ireland as well. But yeah, there isn't that this year. And I think it's also just worth, before we then break down other really important elements of what's going on with inflation, because there's a ton more of, of stuff to talk about here. I think it is also worth pointing out that although, as I said earlier, you know, gas costs have fallen by 31% in the year, nonetheless, the price of gas now mm-hmm. is 60% higher than it was two years ago in October 2021. Yeah. So gas and electricity prices, with no support from the government at the moment, are still really high for people. Lots of people are still going to struggle with their gas and electricity bills in the coming winter. It's still a huge headache for people. And the other thing about all of this as well is when, you know, we're talking about inflation now being 4.6%, that is still well above the 2% target for the Bank of England. And that still means prices are going up, you know, for people. And people are really struggling at the moment. I was this week talking to various food bank and baby bank charities and, and kids charities, and all of them are seeing unprecedented demand. And it is from the working poor. It's people who've got jobs, but literally cannot afford. Their income is not covering what they need to pay in bills. And I know we had some good news this week about wages as well, in terms of you know how much wages are going up by. But still, for so many people, They do not feel better on any level. And this whole, oh, great, Rishi's met his target is just not sitting with people. It's not sitting comfortably. I mean, certainly if you're at the bottom end of the income distribution, if you're on low pay, obviously you're still struggling. I mean, food price inflation has come down very sharply. You know, it wasn't that long ago. It was almost 20%. It's now 10%. But they're still going up. That's the thing. It's Even if it's come down, prices are still going up. 10% food inflation is crippling, right, for many people. But, you know, we should point out, and I think it is important, that if you look at statistics that were out only yesterday, you know, pay in the economy as a whole, including bonuses, was rising in September at 7.9% a year. Okay, that compared to general inflation of 4.6%, that is the first time in a very long time that wages across the piece have been rising significantly faster than the cost of living. Particularly if you're on low incomes, you would say that is not fast enough. And I think there will be many on low incomes for whom energy prices and food prices are so important that, as you say, they're not going to be feeling better off. But across the economy, and certainly for those on middling and and upper incomes, people are now a bit better off. And I mean, obviously, politically, that is significant. It's it's also, if you happen to be lucky enough to be on a higher income, you are going to be feeling a bit better. Whether or not you're going to be spending that increased money is another issue because there are so many uncertainties in the world. And when there are uncertainties, people do on the whole have a propensity to save, which is one of the reasons why the economy is not growing at the moment, because people are cautious. But we should not downplay that there is a bit of better news around the place. Yeah, but still, it doesn't feel like that on the front line. It really doesn't. I know these statistics are important, but it doesn't feel like it's many people's reality. And I know it's an average, so therefore, you know, there's going to be people better off and worse off than that. But if you look at how much like private rents are going up by, that's nearly 6%. If you look at mortgages and how much, you know, the number of people who are about to come off fixed mortgages 
onto, you know, standard variable or having to refix at an incredibly higher rate. I was talking to one of my colleagues who's going from a £800 mortgage a month to a £1,800 mortgage a month. And she's literally in tears about this. Similarly, I was talking this week to uh, someone who works with trying to crack down on loan sharks. And there's something like over a million people in England who are currently in debt to a loan shark. This is some research from the Centre for Social Justice. And over half of them are using this type of debt on everyday essentials. And loan sharks are so different now as well in terms of who these people are. It's not like some burly bloke rocking up and threatening you. You know, the, the, this lady was telling me, she's called Kath Wallace, who works in in uh, the illegal money lending team. She was saying it's such a broad spectrum now. So it's people at the school gates, it's colleagues, it's neighbours, it's friends in the pub. And one anecdote she told me is of someone who borrowed £500. Uh, I think it was something like their washing machine had broken down and they ended up paying back thousands because they were trapped in this cycle of debt and this couple finally managed to pay off the loan shark but then the loan shark went and and they paid back thousands more than that 500 quid the loan shark then turned up at this man's work and spread loads of rumors about the man and he ended up being sacked from his job and borrowing again from this loan shark because he had no money and Similarly, she was telling me about this lady who'd borrowed 50 quid off her sister's friend. That then spiralled out of control. And they worked out, in total, she'd borrowed £3,000 from the loan shark and ended up paying back £26,000 over several years. And the loan shark's still saying she owns another £16,000. And I know they're extreme stories, but I guess my point is there are still so many people who life is not better for them. No, no, no. I mean, the inequality in this country is, you know, one of the great scourges. And, you know, many would say, you know, we've ignored it far too long. You talk about interest rates. And obviously, if you're going to a loan shark, you know, they charge penal rates, whatever's happening to interest rates in the economy as as a whole. But we should also talk a little bit about the outlook for interest rates, particularly since, as you pointed out, there are still hundreds of thousands of people coming off low-priced fixed-rate mortgages, having to reset, you know, interest rates, mortgage rates that are two, three, four times what they've been paying. And that is taking an enormous amount of money out of people's pockets. And so obviously, one of the big things on everybody's mind is what will the Bank of England do on interest rates? I mean, my view would be looking at these figures, it's possible the bank rate, this is the interest rate set by the Bank of England. I thought there was no chance of that coming down at all till the end of next year. I think it is possible now, looking at these figures, that maybe the Bank of England will start to ease interest rates a little bit by the middle of next year. But it is worth, though, drilling down a bit further into the figures today, because in the largest part of the economy, which is the service sector, it's sort of depending on how you measure it, something between 80 and 90% of the economy, you know, inflation is running at 6.6%, right? That is three times the target for the whole economy of 2%. So that is still significant inflation in the service economy. And that is a number the Bank of England takes very seriously. Secondly, core inflation, when you strip out the energy prices we've been talking about, food prices, alcohol and tobacco, these are all prices that Bank of England interest rates can't control, right? If you strip all of those out, inflation is 5.7%. So again, well above target. So the point I'm making is that the Bank of England is going to look at these figures and say, well, it's great that the world price of energy has come down and that therefore the headline rate has come down. But there are pressures in the economy now, homegrown pressures, underlying pressures that they are going to be concerned about. Talked earlier about the good news about wages and incomes and salaries going up at anything between seven and eight percent, depending on which part of the economy you're in. Actually, if you happen to be in the city, it's it's nine percent, which goes back to your point about the unfairness, the inequalities. Of course it is. <laughs> but but that is good news if you happen to be getting a good pay rise. But it is bad news because the Bank of England sees that as inflationary. And it's another reason for the Bank of England not to cut interest rates anytime soon. Yeah. And it only takes one global thing to happen 
And that will just, you know, knock us off the rails again, won't it? You know, it only takes some big supplier of gas or oil to get into trouble or, you know, end up in a war. And and that can completely derail everything, can't it? I mean, certainly no government can control, by definition, what are called exogenous shocks. So basically, events across the other side of the world which lead to big pressures on prices. So you're absolutely right about that. I I thought we ought to just also just look at one really important aspect of all of this, which is the politics of it. I see Rishi Sunak has put out a statement saying that halving inflation was his number one priority, getting it down, in his words, has involved hard decisions and fiscal discipline. And he's basically trying to claim credit for this. Now, you know, let's be absolutely clear. The primary responsibility for getting inflation down is with the Bank of England, right? That's the whole point. Of them being independent. Then this government constantly, you know, reaffirms its commitment to an independent Bank of England. So the first thing we have to say is if any factors that are domestic have driven down inflation, right? It's to do with the behavior of the Bank of England. I should also point out though that as is always the case, you know, even the Bank of England's ability to get inflation down it is limited. Yes, which is always my argument because it's global. It, it is worth pointing out that however good these inflation figures look, inflation is lower in America, Yes, in Germany and in France. Yeah, it's only 3% there. Yeah. And therefore, you know, a lot of what is going on in terms of inflation coming down is a global phenomenon. Even the Bank of England's ability to take credit for it is limited. And therefore, if I were the prime minister, I wouldn't crow too much about what a great success. It's desperation from him. It is true. And I think you have to give them credit for this. They didn't fuel inflation. Okay, there was a lot of pressure from his party to start cutting taxes, to spend more. Those would have been inflationary actions. You know, they might have been popular with his own MPs. They might have been popular in the country. They would have fueled inflation. So in a way, if you give credit to the government, to Jeremy Hunt and to the prime minister, it is for self-restraint. But it's not for anything. Mm. It's the things they didn't do rather than things they did. Yes, exactly. But they didn't have any money to do those things anyway, did they? So, you know, all this talk of when Rishi announced these pledges, we're going to have no tricks or ambiguity. I think he's just delivered on both, hasn't he? Because this is, you know, like you say, this whole fiscal discipline, they'll say it's because they're not spending, but they have no money to spend. So he's just done nothing to push it up. That's the whole point. So the interesting question is now that inflation is lower, and it is a bit lower. And we've also had confirmation that the economy is flatlining, as you and I have been talking about for weeks now. This is now the quite interesting backdrop for next week's autumn statement by the Chancellor. And it's not quite a budget, but it's going to be a very important moment. I mean, my understanding is that he will not announce tax cuts for people next week, but he'll certainly, you know, create the conditions in which there may be tax cuts in the budget next spring. Where there will be giveaways, however, is when it comes to business. And the big giveaway will be making permanent or at least extending for many, well, several years, these enormous allowances that 100% allowances that businesses get when they invest in capital and machinery. Um, He announced in the budget that for three years, any business buying a productive machinery would be able to offset the cost of that against their tax bill. That is very, very, that's a very expensive tax break for businesses. But we have got a problem in this country, which is that businesses don't invest enough. And actually, as a result of that measure and the previous measure, which was even more generous that he announced during COVID, we have begun to see investment in capital machinery rising really quite fast in this country, faster than in other countries, though we're not yet at levels that other countries are at in terms of the overall share of the economy that is accounted for by investment. But the fundamental point is, if we want to get living standards up, we've got to get growth up. And that does mean more investment. Yeah, and, and and coming back to your point on inequality as well, I was talking about earlier, I am just looking at the front of the Yorkshire Post this morning, which is all about how the government are going to spend the money that they're not putting into HS2 on Network North. 
So I'm very interested to see what's going to come out of the autumn statement on that, because what's been suggested here is it's going to be a fancy train station in Bradford, which they say in the King's Cross of the North. Is that a bad idea? Is it as, 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 well, as somebody slightly further north growing up than Bradford? Are you, are you resentful of the Bradford fancy King's Cross? No, I'm not resentful of it because I think in King's Cross, they've done amazing work there in terms of regeneration, mm. haven't they? And there's lots of fabulous housing and, and shops and everything around there. But that's no good if the lines between the stations are rubbish and not helping people get to the jobs that are going to bring in the money that they can spend on these houses and things. Good but point. anyway, that's the that, that'll be something I'll be looking out for next week. And this is going to be one of the subtlest uh, links I've ever done. You know, obviously what we need is faster transport links so people can get to their dates more easily. Now I wonder why <laughs> I wonder I wonder why I said that. So dating apps. So this is really interesting this in terms of, you know, how they're doing, how they make their money and and how things are changing because they're in quite a precarious position. All of the big names in uh, the dating app world like your Bumble and Match Group, which owns the likes of Tinder and Hinge. So they've seen their share prices tank over the last few years. And there's been like lots of executive changes as well in these different companies in the hope of kind of turning their fortunes around. And the, the most notable one being one which was a, a big splash in the FT this week about uh, the new boss of Bumble. Do you know these? Am I literally telling you words you've never heard before? Okay, so, uh, you know, I haven't lived in a cave for the last uh, few years. Although... <laughs> I don't know, I just know you're happily coupled up, so I didn't know whether it might be. And indeed, I am happily, I'm very happily coupled up. But the point is, I'm not even sure I've even opened one of these apps. I've, I've definitely never used one. There was a time, you know, after my wife died in 2012, when I was thinking, you know, maybe this was a way of um, meeting people but I don't know whether it was a generational thing. It was also, I think, partly because if you're sort of well known, you know, from the telly, I just thought, oh my god, I just can't. Mm. You know, I just thought I can't. This is not for me. So I've never, never, never tried one. Yeah. Well, I was um, interestingly talking to Reverend Richard Coles this week, and he, of course, lost his husband a few years ago, and he's just found new love through oh, a dating app so nice. as well. And in terms of growth, in terms of what's happening in the dating app sector, obviously it's the Gen Zs who are still the ones using it the most. But the second biggest users of the apps is 50 to 55 year olds. Is that because loads of people are divorcing? It is. It's people losing their partners and people divorcing. So yeah. So they're now trying to work out how they cater for both the Gen Zs and then the older population who are looking for like the kind of second big relationships or third or fourth or whatever it is. And in case there are some people, I mean, I imagine most people, because it is amazing how widespread these use of these apps are. And it is one of those big social changes. You know, obviously when I was growing up, you know, we had, there were things like dating agencies and there was Guardian Soulmates, which was very popular for a period. But the, the online phenomenon, the app is a very modern phenomenon and they seem to fall into two basic categories. There are the apps which are about just a date. Hookups. Hookups, sex and all the rest of it. And then there are others which are more about building relationships and, and they are very distinct, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. From talking to my mate, who's an exec in a big dating app company, he said, actually, they're at a point now where you're right, there's these different views of dating apps. People just want to meet up to hook up. And then there's others who are getting really fed up because they want more than that. And particularly with Gen Z, they've got to a point now where they are really sick of the superficial nature of dating apps. So they're turned off by the lack of authenticity and the fact that it is just about what your pictures are. And So these are the youngest age group. Yes. And so what they're doing now, because they've kind of reached a point Point where it's not about making money by bringing in new users. It's about trying to make more from the users they have because it's it feels like it's kind of plateaued in terms mm. of user numbers. So what they're doing instead now is launching lots of features to bring authenticity in. So the leader in this field is Match, as I understand it. Yeah, which owns Tinder and Hinge, yeah. Their latest figures, I think, showed a, quite a slowdown in the growth of users. And therefore, as I understand it, and this relates to your point, the aim of all these companies now is to somehow persuade people to pay more for the services. Yeah. So in terms of where they're making the money, so it's still the majority of money is coming from uh, ad revenues. But the second biggest stream of money comes from allowing people to elevate their profile to beat the algorithms so that they can see more people. They can pay more for more choice is what you're saying. Yes, yeah, so you can pay to subscribe and each platform has various levels of subscriptions based on where it 
positions you on the dating site, how many people it puts you in front of, and then also how many swipes you get. I can ask you a question about this. Somebody told me something which I thought was really quite appalling, that there are some people on sites who are regarded in some way as more attractive. And if you pay more you get more access to the attractive people, to the, which is, that's really, is that really true? That's so shocking. Yeah. Well, so my mate was telling me this the other day. She was saying when she went to leave the service and just, you know, quit it because she'd had enough, she was then offered for like a kind of free trial to be more premium. And suddenly all the men were better looking. And so she was like, <laughs> how does that work? That's sort of scary, actually. I know. I just want to come back to my point about authenticity, though, because that's the big focus for these businesses in terms of making money. What does that mean? What does authenticity mean? So it's because the way it works on dating sites at the moment, it's just very much about your picture and what your profile says. So my mate was telling me that the problem they have is particularly heterosexual men are really rubbish at picking a good picture. I know this is a sweeping generalization and there'll be people out there who are really good at this but on the whole they're finding that heterosexual men are not very good at putting a good picture up and they never bother to write a profile so what they're doing now is using AI to try and converse with these lads to say right what are you doing at the weekend Bob you know what do you like doing and then write a profile for them and then going do you know what this picture in your photos would go really well with that because it's something like fewer than half of people who swipe right for each other will ever meet. And that's because the chat between them is so poor. Yeah. So now AI is helping the chat as well. But you can't bring AI along on a date. So well, maybe you can these that? days. Oh, really? So I'm just going to look at, I'm going to go to GPT-4 and I'm going to say, I have no idea what to say to this uh, woman I'm sitting next to. Tell me what to say. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you a question, Robert. When you were a young boy, when you were a teenager, when you were in your early twenties, how good were you at talking to women? I mean, you'd have to ask them. I mean, I was obsessed with what are they thinking? What do they think of me? And you, you just, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's a very boy thing or yeah. that was the most terrifying thing was just trying to work out. I would probably talk in an embarrassed way incessantly, but just constantly thinking, am I making a fool of myself? What do they think? So that manifests on these dating apps of men being a little bit afraid. They're not sure how to converse on these apps. So they might be fine when they finally meet them because they're, you know, like you, interesting, clever and all of that. Uh-huh. But just Thank that so initial much. we can go on a date. <laughs> that initial conversation starter is just stopping a lot of them. And so that's where the dating apps are using AI to try and turn things around here. Do you think we have sort of reached saturation point for these apps? Because it is interesting to me that, you know, although these are now really quite big businesses and individuals have made fortunes from investing in them and creating them. It is interesting the way the markets have slightly turned against them. Is that because we've sort of reached peak digital matching? Mm. And I think as well, if they're really good, then obviously the business model means that they're going to lose all the users because they're all going to go and meet each other and live happily ever after. Well, the point of Hinge, as I understand it, is, I don't know whether it's quite its motto, but I notice that what Hinge says is that it is about creating long-term relationships and therefore making hinge for its users redundant. I mean, it's a good line, whether they really believe it or not, I don't know. The other thing I wanted to just briefly touch on as well, I mentioned Bumble earlier and the fact that they've got a new boss because just to tell you, Bumble, it was um, founded back in 2014 by a brilliant tech entrepreneur called Whitney Wolfhard. She'd co-founded Tinder a few years earlier and then there was this whole sexual harassment case that she sued Tinder for and then they settled out of court and then she set up this Bumble. And the idea with Bumble was that it was much more focused towards women because quite often it is lots of unwarranted messages Mm. from men. So Bumble was about allowing the woman to make the first move so that they weren't bombarded by unwanted advances. And what was really clever was they had this kind of ad strap line, which was, be the CEO your parents always wanted you to marry, then find someone you actually like. So there was this whole kind of empowerment for women and they have control of it. But the company is not been doing very well like the others. You know, since they listed in 2021, the share price is down something like 70 to 80%. And so she was briefly a billionaire, but I don't think is a billionaire anymore. No, she's not. But she's brought in this new woman now, which is very unusual for tech entrepreneurs to be women as well. So she was really focused on finding 
another female boss to run the company and she saw a video of a woman called uh, Lydian Jones, who is boss of Slack, which is this messaging program for workplace. I mean, I'm sure everyone knows what that is. And she was explaining what Slack GPT is, so obviously their version of AI stuff. And was like, that's the woman who can run the dating app, even though she's got no experience. And this Lydian's really fascinating because she grew up in a poor part of Brazil, got a computer scholarship at 18, which took her out of the kind of shanty town she was growing up in. And she ended up doing an internship at Apple and and then, you know, went to Microsoft and various other big companies in tech and has now got this big job. But she keeps talking about AI is going to be the thing that turns this around. So in answer to your question, yes, there is definitely a point at the moment where the dating app companies are all struggling and there's new apps coming out every week, which is, you know, eating at market share. But if they use AI cleverly and bring back that authenticity, I think it will work because that's what all my mates are saying. They're just sick of all the focus on photos. And so if it can be other elements to it, then it, there's potentially a, a good chance that they'll win over everyone. Because loads of my, honestly, I can't tell you how many female friends I've got who are single and fabulous, but they cannot find someone. So where are all these blokes that they could match up with? And so there's just got to be someone out there who can make this all happen. Well, of course, it won't be long before people will be dating Elon Musk's humanoid robots. Yes. <laughs> what a very sad thought. Do you think we should move on at this point? At that shocking thought, let's move on. Right. Should we have a break? Good idea. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply Welcome back to The Rest is Money with me, Steph McGovern. And me, Robert Pearson. What are we going to talk about, Steph? We are going to talk about the big reshuffle and David Cameron coming back into the cabinet as foreign secretary and his connection to Greensill Capital, which is a, a business that basically provided loans to businesses to help them pay their suppliers when they were waiting for their customers to pay to them. And we've actually had a question from Ollie Hall on this too, who says, with the return of David Cameron to government, it would be great to get a recap with the Greensill scandal from a couple of years back. It feels like a long time ago now. And I know you know loads on this, uh, Robert, but it has been quite the week, hasn't it? Yeah. So it really was a shocking moment when I saw David Cameron get out of that car in front of Downing Street. You know, it was literally like going back in time because I'd actually been standing in Downing Street when he resigned, you know, after losing his campaign to keep us in the European Union. It was a very weird moment. Anyway, immediately my first thought is that this, of course, sort of legitimizes people to crawl over again his role in propping up Greensill, a lender which took on the garb of being a sort of modern fintech company that collapsed. And, you know, there are lots and lots of aspects to all of this. We should remind people Lex Greensill is this sort of charismatic banker. He was at Morgan Stanley and then he was at Citibank, Citigroup, two huge American banks. He then sets up this business in an area called supply chain finance. And basically, if you're a business and you are 
owed money by your customers, you've supplied, could be anything to them. What he does is he buys the invoices at a discount and he gives you not 100% of your money, but some of your money. And the clever, well, the so-called clever thing that he did was he then sold those invoices to investors. And the way that those investors, in theory, made a profit is they would eventually get the full invoice honoured. Apparently, it was inspired by Lex seeing his parents, who were Australian farmers, struggling with the business when customers were late paying them. And obviously, they still had suppliers to pay. It's promoted itself as a high-tech lender. But I mean, this kind of lending has been going on for years. The interesting point about Lex Greensill is that he persuaded a very powerful man in the government who was the cabinet secretary, a man called Jeremy Hayward, that you know he was an absolutely brilliant banker. And Jeremy Hayward allowed him to come in and have an office in Downing Street. I mean, it's an astonishing thing, actually, looking back on it. What does that mean, have an office in Downing Street? I mean, this is ex- an extraordinary thing. So he had a card that said he was an advisor to the prime minister, and he would have meetings with businesses in Downing Street. This is while David Cameron was prime minister, but there's actually no implication. There was quite a big investigation by a lawyer called Nigel Borden into all of this. There's no suggestion that this privileged access to Downing Street that Lex Greensill was given had anything to do with David Cameron at this stage. But it certainly gives credibility to their business if you've got an office in number 10. And it you- gave massive credibility to Lex Greensill. And, you know, he met with really huge multinational businesses within Downing Street's walls. And in the case, for example, of Vodafone, he got some business out of them. Now, how much that was to do with the fact that Vodafone thought that somehow he was being endorsed by the government, it's impossible to know. But it feels very, I mean, it makes you know, it makes me feel very uncomfortable that, that somebody should be having those meetings there. Now, we move on. And after the Prime Minister of the time, David Cameron, resigns 2016 when he quits, after that, he's looking for work. And one of the jobs he picks up is with Greensill. And he is paid hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. In fact, allegedly, he's paid a million dollars a year. And he's given a whole wadge of share options, which if things had gone well for Greensill, might well have been worth 60 or $70 million, right? So colossal amount of, of money. But there are a number of things here. One is, of course, when you get to COVID, beginning of 2020, all financial businesses are very anxious, much harder to raise money in that period. And Greensill is in itself very anxious about its ability to raise money. So it's getting into trouble. The other thing that is relevant to Greensill, and this is obviously still being looked at by regulators, is the question to, about whether it really ever had a, a, you know, a particularly interesting or sustainable business. Because the other thing that happens in 2020, one of the ways, one of the things we've talked about often is they, they are a sort of bank, right? What they do is they borrow from markets and they then essentially pass that through to companies by buying these invoices. Yeah. Now, the point about that this business is one of the ways that it was able to persuade really quite sophisticated investors across the world to buy these invoices is that they got the invoices insured. And ultimately, the insurer was this huge Japanese insurance company called Tokyo Marine. Now, the other thing that happens in 2020 is that Tokyo Marine just decides it doesn't want to insure these invoices anymore. At that point, Greensill is frankly no longer a sustainable business. And it's the following year that it goes bust. And it goes bust, you know, with a massive hole in its balance sheet. So the big issue now that we've got to explore is the role of David Cameron in all of this. Because the accusations are that he intensively lobbied for Greensill, sending something like... 50 emails, loads of texts and WhatsApp messages about Greensill to civil servants. And indeed to ministers. Now, it is provably the case, as you say, that he lobbied the government very intensively for access to various treasury schemes. 
there are two things to say about this. The first is, if you look at this Boardman report and if you look at what the Treasury Select Committee has said, they all say that David Cameron's behaviour in lobbying people he knew in government was totally inappropriate. It also appears to be the case because the rules, and I use this word advisedly, are obviously shit. It also turns out to be the case that he doesn't seem to have broken the rules because they're so badly drafted, right? But everybody looking at it thinks, you know, former prime ministers should not be able to exert this kind of pressure on either civil servants that he's worked with or indeed with people currently in government that he knows and has worked with in the past. This looks like privileged access that he shouldn't be able to take advantage of. In fairness to the Treasury, in fairness, in fact, to Rishi Sunak, who was Chancellor at the time, they all said no to David Cameron. They all said this is not an appropriate use of money. Actually, it did in the end get some money, quite a lot of money, out of an organisation called the British Business Bank. And that, again, well, we just, it's very unclear. We still haven't got to the bottom of why the British Business Bank did supply all this money to Greensill. And that is still the subject of of some considerable investigation. Yeah, because what they did with the money next is also under investigation, isn't it? About this money going to this uh, steel tycoon, Sanjeev Gupta, and it looks like they broke rules in terms of giving them more than they should have to someone with you know an interest in different businesses, but it looks like they broke the rules there in terms of how that money was dished out to. That is still the subject of an investigation by the Serious Fraud Office. And you know, at the heart of all of this is this really extraordinary relationship between Next Greensill's organisation, Greensill, and Sanjeev Gupta's really huge international sort of steel and commodities business. So this is very murky stuff. I mean, I should just say on a personal note, you know, I remember long before the scandal broke, feeling, gosh, it's really interesting how much, I talked to you earlier about this, uh, the, the late Cabinet Secretary Jeremy Hayward, how obsessed he was with Lex Greensill. Because the only time I, I've actually even met Lex Greensill was when I happened to be with Jeremy Hayward and he said, you've really got to meet this bloke. What was he like? He's very, you know, he's very charming, very plausible. There's a picture that was published in a number of newspapers. I think it was originally in the Wall Street Journal of Greensill and David Cameron sitting in a tent. I think it's in Saudi after a meeting with MBS, who you know runs Saudi, and they're looking very—they're both looking very dapper and very. Greensill in particular had a real obsession with the best tailoring. He came from a farm in Australia, but he really he wanted to be the country gentleman. So he bought an enormous estate. He bought the finest suits, and it is a remarkable story. And so, I mean, I, th- I suppose the bottom line of all of this is it is sort of amazing in a way that you know Cameron comes back and all he says about any of this is well I've answered the questions we'll see you know whether he has answered all the questions and there's certainly a risk that Rishi Sunak has taken on in appointing him is that we discover there are more questions to answer yeah yeah um so one other point about Cameron I was talking to an American diplomat yesterday and in terms of his sort of business interests, one of the things he said was relevant and that Washington is sort of what you might call wary about and some people in Washington may be anxious about is, as you know, as prime minister, he was really, really a champion of close relations between the UK and China. And subsequently, he was involved in trying to sort of promote, again, sort of investment between the UK and China. In the current climate, that is something that Certainly, you know, the government of Joe Biden is not completely relaxed about. Yeah, that's interesting to see how that's going to play out. It's so depressing that every week in this podcast, Robert, we end up talking about the downfall of a business being often a bloke who is charismatic, but once again is, you know, won people over by being an, an amazing salesperson, but not actually delivered the goods and, you know, Lex Greensill, we've talked about Ali Parser of Babylon, we've talked about Adam Newman of WeWork. There is that common theme amongst all of them that it's all about their personality. They, you know, build people up on things they can't deliver on. And surprise, surprise, they always get money out of SoftBank as well. <laughs> the other thing just to point out is that, you know, in the case of Ali Parser's business, you know, Matt Hancock, as Secretary of State, 
was very much a, a supporter. So he, in a sense, lent credibility to Babylon, a business that has gone bust. And, you know, David Cameron lent credibility simply by being on the payroll, very publicly on the payroll. He gave credibility to a very dodgy business. And, you know, you've got to ask yourself, why do politicians have such shockingly bad business judgment? Yeah. Time for some new ones. Right. Shall we move on to questions then? Uh, just a reminder, the email to send messages to is restismoney at gmail.com. And you can also send them to us on Instagram or on X. And it's the rest is money if you search for us on there. Julie Harrison says, if businesses in Freeports pay no tax on goods and services, does the Treasury lose money? Where are the checks and balances on transactions? Yeah, Freeport's a it's a really interesting topic, this, because it's about trying to, you know, bring prosperity and level up, but just to remind people what they are. So that it's an area basically which exists outside of a country's borders for tax purpose. So geographically it's in the country, but in terms of tax purposes, it's classed as being out of the border of it. So the normal tax and custom rules don't apply. And then there's also lots of incentives and things for businesses to locate in these places, like no stamp duty, no business rates for a certain number of years and and rebates for things like investment in construction and machinery. And I know you mentioned that earlier, didn't you, Robert, about what we might hear on that in the autumn statement. Mm. So you'll remember back in March, I think it was 2021, 12 areas were announced to be these free port areas. So there's been lots of promises around how many jobs these might bring in. So something like, I think the government said 200,000 additional jobs between them. And to Julie's point about, okay, yes, so they will not be paying some taxes, Uh, because of the incentives. So therefore, the Treasury is losing money in that sense. But the idea is they'll bring lots of revenue in through the jobs that they provide for people and therefore more income tax people are paying and the pros are meant to outweigh the cons. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies have been doing quite a bit of analysis on this or trying to at least. And their concern about it, which is also one I'm really interested in, is the idea that what could happen here is, yes, you might get a boost of investment and jobs and things in these Freeport areas. And that will benefit, of course, the residents and all the people who live there. But will that come at the expense of other areas? That is the point. It's basically, does it cannibalise investment somewhere else. And that's always that's always the big issue when you create these tax-free zones. So it's hard to measure that because they've been trying to look at like controlled areas, but how can you look at a controlled zone? If the controlled zone, if it's like a free port area, inevitably that probably means the businesses there might move to mm. the free port areas. Well, you don't know till it's too late, do you? Exactly. And, you know, and also I'm particularly interested in this because the biggest one out of all these free ports is near me. So it's the Teesside Freeport. That's something like it covers like oh nearly five thousand acres wow. of the area. I think someone worked it out. It's the equivalent to two thousand five hundred football pitches in terms of size. So this really covers you know everywhere where I grew up. They reckon it's going to bring in eighteen thousand jobs in the area and give us like a boost of over three billion in the economy. But there's been loads of controversy around it. So much so that Michael Gove, you know, a few months ago launched a whole investigation into what's been going on. Yeah, I saw that there's an allegation that the business of awarding contracts hasn't been fair. Yeah, exactly. So I'm just really dubious about the benefits that can come from these free pots. Right, should we have another question? So given the reshuffles we've had this week, Robert, quite a few people have been asking about the economic impact. So Aurora Lee, what a great name, says, uh, what have you observed in terms of economic impacts that cabinet reshuffles can have? Someone called E. Hill says, what is the financial impact of reshuffles? Does it take money from the Secretary of State pots? Robert. So the short answer is it shouldn't have any real economic impact other than if you happen to appoint as your new Secretary of State somebody who is incredibly persuasive, maybe that person will be able to persuade the Chancellor over time to give them more money than the previous not very impressive Secretary of State, a word came into my head that I probably shouldn't say. Uh, <laughs> say, it, say, it. <laughs> say. So, you know, over time it might have an impact, but there shouldn't be any direct impact. The extent to which, again, it might have an economic impact is if you take the view, and I don't think this is completely mad, that we've talked about the negatives around David Cameron, right? If you think 
that he will be more of a heavyweight on the world stage because, you know, he's been prime minister and lots of people around, lots of other, you know, governments around the world know him. If that were in some way to up the reputation globally of the UK, around the world at the moment, people basically see the UK as this sort of chaotic mess. You know, they didn't, you know, mm-hmm. international investors didn't like Brexit. They didn't like the trust debacle. You know, we need a bit of stability. If you were to believe that appointing somebody like David Cameron would persuade international investors that we're moving back to a slightly more stable government, then maybe the, co- the so-called cost of capital in the UK falls a bit and maybe people put a bit more money here. But these are very, very, very marginal effects and they take an enormously long time to have an impact. So broadly, the, the short answer is reshuffles, except in the circumstances where you've had a period of chaos, but you might argue that Rishi Sunak's reshuffle after the trust chaos did have a positive impact in the sense that that w- was associated with stability or, or the reintroduction of stability after chaos. Constant reshuffles can't be good, though. Not even just no. the kind of practicalities of, you know, new people being brought in and new advisors being sought and everything else. Oh, yeah, yeah. We need stability. It's, it's, it's that other point, as you say. Now, look, final question. YouTube influencers, one of those things that I know you're a great expert on. Uh, Will Bays asks, how much money do YouTube influencers really make? What does it mean to have 5,000, 50,000, 100,000, a million plus subscribers what about the product sponsorship and the free goods, etc.? Can I ask you, do you do any influencing? Yeah, so I do do a bit. And, and the majority of money, it doesn't come from the actual views. It comes from the companies that pay you to promote stuff. So, for example, I did some work with Specsavers and, oh, okay. you know, would tag the glasses in to post. I'm doing so then Specsavers would pay me money to do that. Because of my work as a political editor, I can't do it. I'm not allowed to do it. Yeah, see, well, that was one of my great joys of leaving the BBC was I was able to do all these things. But no, just coming back to the question, though, it is really interesting. So, of course, the followers show a brand how popular you are and also they can see your kind of demographic. You can get really interesting stats on who exactly is looking at that particular person's posts and things. So then brands can really target specific markets using these influencers. But the majority of money comes from the brands paying them to do things. You, you'll make a bit of money off how many people watch it from like YouTube or whatever but the majority of it will come from brands paying them to to do things for them but what I'd love to talk about next week is what happens when influencers go bad or you know they end up in the papers with some terrible story like how much does that impact a brand that they supported so is this the Adidas story yeah so like obviously Kanye West is had a bit of a downfall and has, you know, a massive connection with Adidas and things. So what happens there? That's such an interesting subject. I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. Well, that's it from us this week. Thank you again for all of the messages you've been sending in. Do keep them coming, restismoney at gmail.com or you can send them on our socials. Just search for us under the rest is money. Yep. Thanks to all of you and do send in your questions. Bye-bye.